0: Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today, as part of our series on nuclear fusion, we're going to be talking about the development of the hydrogen bomb. So where we left off in the last episode, we talked about Edward Teller's failed attempt to get the Manhattan Project to focus on fusion bombs, his growing feud with Oppenheimer, Zillard's letter that triggered the Manhattan Project, and then Zillard's unsuccessful petitions to avoid the atomic bombs from being dropped. Zillard and Teller were both part of an extraordinary crop of Hungarian physicists and mathematicians who emigrated to the USA in the 1930s and 1940s, and worked together on the Manhattan Project. This group includes Eugene Wigner, Theodore von Karman, Paul Erdos, and John von Neumann. The last of these had such a terrifying faculty with mathematics that even his colleagues were in awe of it. Wigner said, I have sometimes wondered whether a brain like von Neumann's does not indicate a species superior to that of man. While even Teller's ego wasn't so great that he admitted that he couldn't keep up with him, and that von Neumann would carry on a conversation with my three-year-old son, and the two of them would talk as equals. I sometimes wondered if he used the same principle when he talked to the rest of us. I think, given his immense contributions to physics, mathematics, and especially computing, without which very little of this would be possible, von Neumann really deserves his own biographical episode, so I won't go into too much detail. Except to say that Teller was far from the only smart person to work on the H-bomb, even if he did end up inextricably identified with it. In fact, some of this group of Hungarians were talking to the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi about his famous paradox, which we covered in the episode Fermi and Drake. Namely, since by most reckonings, in a universe with this many planets there should be plenty of intelligent civilizations, where are they when we look for them? Zillard responded that the answer was clear. The superintelligent species had already arrived on Earth and walked amongst them, as Hungarians. From then on, he would refer to members of that specific group of physicists as the Martians. And many of them shared Teller's suspicion and hatred of totalitarianism, which motivated their desire to work on bigger and better weapons. Even von Neumann, who doesn't have Teller's fearsome reputation, said, If you say why not bomb the Soviets tomorrow, I say why not today. If you say today at five o'clock, I say why not one o'clock. Yet this view was far from universal. The most important thing to remember in thinking about the early nuclear era is that we have to correct for hindsight bias. The outcome we ended up with, a Cold War that never went nuclear, and nuclear weapons possessed by a limited club of nations who never used them in combat, but instead tried to keep them out of the hands of anyone else, well this outcome might seem far more likely to us in hindsight than it seemed at the time. But you have to remember that those people had lived through two major superpower wars in the space of 30 years. The scientists who worked on the atomic bomb had little reason to suspect that there might not be a third, unless things dramatically changed. Oppenheimer was amongst the scientists and policy experts who argued that nuclear knowledge and potentially dangerous activities like mining uranium should be put under international control. We must elect world peace or world destruction, as the US representative to the UN Atomic Energy Commission put it. But by 1949, the Soviets had rejected that proposal and tested their own nuclear bomb. The nuclear monopoly that the US had briefly enjoyed was over, and they were no longer in a position to dictate terms of nuclear weapons policy to anyone. At least not yet. But here is where Teller saw his opportunity. By being the first to develop fusion bombs, the US could maintain their nuclear supremacy over the Soviets. Now it's here in these days that his feud with Oppenheimer really began. Teller watched as his home nation of Hungary fell to the Soviet Union, and endured endless purges of those who were disloyal and all this time he had to contend with the lefty Oppenheimer, who was impeding his efforts towards pursuing a fusion bomb, persuading scientists like Bethe not to get involved with the project at first. This feud would eventually lead to the infamous testimony that we talked about last episode, where, as Oppenheimer faced accusations of being a communist, Teller recommended that his security clearance be revoked. It was the stab in the back that has really contributed so much to Teller's fearsome reputation. Loyal listeners will recall my excellent interview with Simon Ings when we discussed the Soviet bomb project, and a very notable incident where Klaus Fuchs, who was a Soviet spy, sat in awkward silence while Oppenheimer and the others discussed whether sharing nuclear secrets with the Soviets might be just the thing to lead to world peace. Fuchs was a spy who had aided the Russian project, and in 1950 he was caught. This was the turning point for President Truman, Fuchs knew about the possibility of a fusion bomb, so the Soviets were likely already working on one. When the father of the Soviet H-bomb Sakharov became a dissident years later, it became clear from what he said that they were working on a fusion bomb from 1948. But what it did was it really triggered the Western Allies to get to work developing a hydrogen bomb, and four days after Fuchs had been arrested, the super project was go. Albert Einstein, co signer of the Zillard peace letters, went on TV to read a prepared statement. He said, The idea that this new weapon will make the US safer is a disastrous illusion. Every step appears as the unavoidable consequence of the preceding one. In the end, there beckons more and more clearly general annihilation. The super may have been yet another step in a world of nuclear peril. But Teller didn't have a working design for one. You'll remember in the last episode, his plan was basically to stick an atomic bomb in a big vat of deuterium and hope that the heat and pressure from the explosion would suffice to set off a self-sustaining nuclear fusion chain reaction in the deuterium. But this simply didn't work. Charles Safer wrote a wonderful book, Sun in a Bottle, about nuclear fusion. Of Teller's first design, he says, quote, Teller was a theorist. Theorists sometimes overlook or underestimate little nagging practicalities that make the job harder than they originally imagine. This sentence, more than any other, describes the entire nuclear fusion effort, from weapons through to power stations. Creating a fusion bomb was even more difficult than creating a fission bomb. The reason is simple, it's the same reason why fission power is easier than fusion power. To observe fusion and to test your ideas about how it works experimentally, you need some way of creating and containing incredibly hot and dense plasma, replicating conditions similar to those at the heart of the sun. Fusion simply doesn't start to happen unless you put an extraordinary amount of energy in to overcome the nuclei that repel each other. To observe fission and test your ideas about how a fission bomb might work, you just need to get a big lump of fissionable material, enrich it a little, and wait maybe throw in a few neutrons to kickstart the chain reaction, but it's not that hard to tinker with things and work on a design as an experimentalist, providing that you have the uranium to work with. But fusion, instead, had to be approached purely theoretically, because the only conditions that could possibly get to that heat and temperature that they had at the moment were the conditions that you got when a nuclear bomb was exploded. At first, Teller's bomb wouldn't work because it required tritium as well as deuterium to ignite, Tritium doesn't occur naturally, and needs to be manufactured in a rather expensive process. And whatever of it does occur naturally, the half-life is so short that it basically decays away, so you can't find much of it. A Polish mathematician, Stanislaw Ulam, spent more and more time laboriously calculating and disproving Teller's optimistic estimates for the amount of tritium that was required for a self-sustaining reaction with Teller's design. The calculations, which Ulam would later write, made Teller pale with rage, showed that kilograms of tritium would be required, far too impractical for them to manufacture at this time. And later, Ulam and Fermi would calculate that, regardless of how much tritium you had, deuterium in a tube could never ignite. Radiation would always lead the energy to escape faster than it was being generated. There could be no unstoppable chain reaction, no nuclear explosion. Teller's first design would have been a fizzling dud and he grew increasingly desperate over the next few months, as colleagues blamed his over-optimistic calculations for leading them down a foolish path. Countless new designs were proposed, including one Teller dubbed the Alarm Clock, where layers and layers of fissionable and fusionable material were stacked on top of each other. This was actually also an idea that Sakharov in the Soviet Union had come up with around a similar time, and while it might technically work, the device was also impractical. By the time the bomb got to the level of power expected by a super, so anything sufficiently higher than a normal nuclear bomb, you had so many layers that the thing would be far too big to deliver. You couldn't put it on a plane, you'd have to maybe put it on a boat. Years of Teller's dreams then seemed wasted at this point. Now given all that we've said about the man's ego, one can only imagine his reaction when, of all people, it was Ulan who came up with the workable design for a fusion bomb. Ulam was the one who had realised what Sakharov in the Soviet Union would realise a few years later, that the key was to separate the atomic bomb primary from the fusion secondary device. So the precise nature of what would become known as the ulam teller design is a matter of some controversy, because the few people in a position to know who really came up with the key ideas have all made contradictory statements. Teller initially shared the credit, but later he said that the design and the credit should be entirely his. Early on, some scientists did give more credit to Teller, but after he fell from favour for denouncing Oppenheimer, they would needle him for stealing credit for the bomb from Ulam. Without either of them, you imagine that the fusion bomb project would have gone very differently, and it's extremely difficult to disentangle historical fact from all the various interplaying personal grievances. It's certainly the case that without Teller, there probably wouldn't have been a fusion bomb at this time, simply because he was the one who was pushing for it to the extent that he had done. And this is especially the case, this controversy, because actually many of the details of the Teller Ulam design are still completely classified amongst the most closely guarded of nuclear secrets, although France, Great Britain, and China have independently developed similar designs, as did the Soviets. So, as far as whether Teller or Ulam came up with the idea, I'll just leave you with John von Neumann, who said, quote, Edward Teller may be the father of the hydrogen bomb, but Ulam surely slept with the mother. Regardless of this, the basic concept is the same. You use the fission primary bomb. In the first few nanoseconds after that bomb goes off, 80% of the energy is released in the form of powerful x-rays traveling at the speed of light. That's 300,000 kilometers per second. Meanwhile, the core of the fission bomb is expanding at around 1,000 kilometers per second. So you can see here that these x-rays are actually traveling faster than the bomb itself is blowing apart physically. So you have a tiny window of time after the X-rays are released, but before the explosion and the shockwave tears the bomb to pieces. During this time, the X-rays are streaming towards a tiny capsule of fusion fuel, deuterium-tritium, for example. The following is adapted from Carey Sublet's Frequently Asked Questions about nuclear weapons. Quote, when the primary explodes, the X-rays escaping from the fission bomb Fill the space between the bomb casing and the fusion capsule with a photon gas. This space is normally filled with plastic foam, essentially just carbon and hydrogen, which is instantly vaporized, or perhaps plasmaized, into carbon hydrogen plasma. All the electrons are stripped away by the force of the explosion. The inner casing and the outer capsule surfaces are heated to very high temperatures. The uranium shield between the trigger and the fusion capsule and the capsule pusher prevents the fusion fuel from becoming heated prematurely. This is important because you need that little bit of extra time for thermal equilibrium of the photon gas to establish itself. That way, the temperature is uniform throughout the radiation channel that surrounds the fusion pellet, and because all of the photons are moving with the same momentum, you'll get a symmetrical compression of the fusion fuel pellet. As the surface of the pusher becomes heated, it expands and ablates, that means it blows off the surface of the fuel capsule. This ablation process, essentially a rocket turned inside out, generates tremendous pressure on the fuel capsule and causes an accelerating implosion. Thermal equilibrium means that this implosion pressure is very uniformly distributed. The force that compresses and accelerates the fusion fuel inwards is provided solely by this ablation pressure. The other two possible sources of pressure plasma pressure, generated by the thermal motion of this carbon-hydrogen plasma that's confined between the casing and the fuel capsule, and the radiation pressure, directly generated by the thermal x-ray photons, do not directly influence the process. This ablation pressure causes cylindrical or spherical implosion of the fusion capsule. At this point, the explosive force released by the first atomic bomb, an amount of energy sufficient to destroy a small city, is simply being used To squeeze several kilograms of fuel. There's a so-called spark plug of extra fissionable material that's contained within the very centre of the fusion fuel. This gets triggered by the compression and explodes outwards. Caught between the imploding plasma from the primary bomb and the exploding fission capsule the deuterium tritium is compressed to an incredible extent and fusion can take place releasing its awesome energy. For a few nanoseconds you have a piece of the sun on earth. The density for the fusion fuel that can be obtained is critical to the amount of energy that is released, and despite the power of the primary fission explosion, there's not enough time for the compression to increase the density by more than a thousand times before the bomb would just blow itself apart. Nevertheless, the Castle Bravo test, the first full thermonuclear bomb tested by the Americans, was powerful enough. At 10 megatons, it was 700 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb. The fallout was enough to poison people on neighbouring islands, alongside the unfortunate crew of a Japanese fishing vessel. Teller didn't watch this one directly, sunglasses, sunscreen or no. Instead, he watched from a lab in University of Berkeley, as a seismograph recorded the tremors in the earth that followed the blast. When we say that fusion bombs harness the power of the sun, it's no exaggeration. The largest ever detonated was 50 megatons of TNT equivalent. That was in 1961. Given the explosion only lasts for a few nanoseconds, you can easily calculate that. While it was exploding, the power of the bomb was around 1% of that released by the sun. So the dream of fusion power releasing the power of the sun has been practical for decades. It's just that you need 100 Tsar bombers, you can release that power for a few nanoseconds, and the effects would be unimaginable. When Tsar Bomba went off, the Mushroom Cloud rose to more than five times the height of Everest. Tested in Russia, it shattered windows in Norway and Sweden. It was the largest bomb ever detonated. But of course it doesn't end here. You can build yet more powerful bombs by using the secondary fusion explosion to trigger a third fusion explosion in a three-stage bomb. I don't know how many more bomb stages are capable of being combined practically, but Teller, in one of his more Dr. Love moments, proposed building a 10 gigaton bomb, a thousand times more powerful than the hydrogen bombs. According to Alex Wellerstein, a 10 gigaton weapon, by my estimation, would be powerful enough to set all of New England on fire, or most of California, or all of the UK and Ireland, or all of France, or all of Germany, or both North and South Korea, and so on. Now regardless of whether or not that's true of what would happen in practice, it's certainly a moot point. Beyond a certain level, additional explosive yield doesn't actually translate to much more destruction on the ground. The practical limit of fusion bombs is probably around 150 megatons. Beyond this, the main effect of the bombs is just to lift a huge column of air and punch it into outer space, along with most of the energy of the bomb. There's no military use for substantially larger bombs anyway, because what target is that big, unless you actually want to destroy the world. As Teller himself put it, bigger bombs just blow the atmosphere into outer space. It's hard to imagine a target for a gigaton bomb, or the consequences of detonating one. Freeman Dyson wrote in The Day After Trinity, referring to the first nuclear test. He said, quote, I felt it myself the glitter of nuclear weapons to feel there in your hands the energy that fuels the stars, to let it do your bidding, to lift millions of tons of rock into the sky. It is something that gives people an illusion of illimitable power, this technical arrogance that overcomes people when they see what they can do with their minds. Yet at the same time, Teller's colleague, Louis Strauss, was fully embracing the power that was unleashed by fusion weapons, He justified it in this rather eschatological way A higher intelligence decided that man is ready to receive this power. My faith tells me that the Creator did not intend man to evolve through the ages, only now to devise something that would destroy all life on Earth. Indeed, for Tello and his colleagues, there were barely any problems that fusion weapons couldn't solve. The Suez Crisis, for example, was caused when Egypt seized control of the crucial Suez Canal which provided the shortest ocean link between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean, cutting across the point where Africa touches the Balkans. Teller and some of his fellow scientists at Livermore suggested using nuclear weapons to simply cut another canal into the Israeli desert, ending Egypt's monopoly and solving the political crisis for the West. Teller loved the idea of nuclear engineering, as it was briefly called. What couldn't you do? Another Panama Canal? Excavations for harbour sites? mass-produced diamonds by compressing carbon with nuclear bombs. You could create all the drinking water or water for crops you needed by just melting a glacier. If you've got a mountain in the wrong place, bragged Teller, give us a call. All you need is nukes. When I was researching an article on the plans for solar panels in the Sahara Desert as a solution to the world's energy needs, I came across a project that was briefly discussed by the Nazis called Atlantropa. The concept here was to join Europe and Africa with a vast dam across the Straits of Gibraltar. The dam would provide huge amounts of hydroelectric power and allow for transport directly over land between the two continents. Meanwhile, the Mediterranean Sea would drain substantially and, with no ocean water, you could use it for irrigating the Sahara Desert, which would become a big breadbasket for the new supercontinent. Since it was a Nazi scheme first proposed during the era of colonialism, you can of course imagine that a little consideration was given to the Africans in this plan. It sounds nuts, yet this was also considered by Teller and the others as one of these nuclear engineering schemes. We will change the earth's surface to suit us, wrote Teller. Naturally the earth was not enough, he went on. One will probably not resist for long the temptation to shoot at the moon, just to observe what kind of disturbance it might cause, End quote. And of course, nuclear weapons could be used to create more nuclear weapons. Ted Taylor, who worked on the bomb, noted that detonating a nuclear weapon somewhere deep under ice could create all the tritium that you'd ever want. Detonating it over uranium could produce plutonium. The pesky elements that had limited Teller's possibilities for bomb design in the early days could quite easily be created with the power of nuclear weapons. Teller and his ultra-enthusiasts were reined in, though, by public fears about fallout. Try as he might to dismiss it as a problem, arguing that the average exposure to radiation due to a nuclear test is less than that from eating bananas and so on, there was a growing momentum on for a ban on nuclear tests, or at any rate, a desire to keep them underground to avoid the risk of fallout. This would preclude any of the engineering problems that so-called Operation Plowshare had in mind. And although Teller railed against all of the test-ban treaties, arguing that the security of the USA was at stake, he didn't get to build his new canals. A similar scheme in the Soviet Union carved out an artificial lake, but eventually that went nowhere also. Some of the more cynical physicists and historians suspect that the main reason Teller was proposing all of these schemes about peaceful uses for fusion bombs was to give the US a decent excuse for violating treaties with the USSR about nuclear tests. He constantly complained that the USSR was violating these treaties, often with flimsy evidence to support that. And it's telling that while claiming that the purpose of further development and use of fusion weapons was peaceful, when he attacked these treaties, he was only talking about being unprepared for a thermonuclear war. But perhaps, of course, this is genuine fear from someone who was convinced that the Soviets were the greatest threat, that they would launch a preemptive strike and destroy America. Isidore Rabi, a fellow physicist and Teller contemporary, said I've never seen Teller take a position where there was the slightest chance of peace. I think he is the enemy of humanity. He would remain prominent and influential in the US establishment until he died but many of his grandest and wildest schemes never quite came to fruition. We know from interviews that he hated the Dr. Strange look comparison, and maybe he did genuinely view everything he did as necessary for US security. There are plenty of fascinating stories we could tell. For example, his early warning to the fossil fuel industry about carbon dioxide leading to climate change, which gradually evolved into a position of global warming isn't a problem, and if it is, geoengineering can easily fix it or his involvement in Reagan's Star Wars Missile Defense Shield. But I think we've spent enough time with the man who doggedly pursued, and then perhaps falsely claimed to have invented, the fusion bomb. Bombs were weapons of war, blunt instruments. If that dream, the dream of harnessing the sun's power, a fundamental force of nature, and using it for human ends, was going to be realised, the scientists would need to be more subtle and less explosive. We will explore that enticing, frustrating quest in the next few episodes. In the process, we'll see geniuses and fraudsters. Tokamaks and lasers. Triumphs, progress and failures. It's going to be a wild ride. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, and apologies if any of you downloaded the earlier incorrect episode file. I happen to have named these two episodes very similar to each other, and... While it may be confusing for you, it was just as confusing for me. So hopefully for posterity that's fixed now, and sorry about that. You can follow us online at PhysicsPod on Twitter. We've got the Physical Attraction Facebook page. We have a Patreon page where you can subscribe and, for a small fee, get new episodes, new bonus episodes of the show. You can purchase our past bonus episodes either by subscribing to that feed or by directly donating to us on paypal the details are on the website at www.physicspodcast.com you can also still enter the competition for the 100th episode remember what you have to do is tell your story of what is physics in audio or in writing there's books as prizes your essay or your speech or whatever you want to call it will appear on the 100th episode show it's a really good thing to enter and um, anyone who does enter will be in with a pretty good chance of winning those books and a decent chance of taking home a physical attraction mug also. So it's all things you can do to help support the show, but of course the greatest thing you can do to help us is to tell as many people to listen as possible. Until next time then, take care.